Please remain standing and turn with me to Proverbs 27. Proverbs 27. Let's read the first six verses of this chapter. Do not boast about tomorrow. For you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let's turn now to Acts 14. And we'll read verses... Um, actually, we'll read the entire chapter. We'll read, let, we'll, no, I'm sorry. We'll read 1, one through 23. I was confused because I changed it in the outline. Just the first 23 verses. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up. And began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, They tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. 
but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Amen. You may be seated. Last Thursday night, last Thursday night, uh, Friday into Friday morning, I understand there was a text message that went out from the Penn State Alert Emergency Notification System. Uh, warning members of the campus community to avoid downtown State College. Crowd on Beaver Avenue is an unlawful disturbance. Leave the area or be subject to arrest. Uh, This is, of course, after the football game. I think later the authorities uh, started calling it a celebratory disturbance instead of an unlawful disturbance. Um, Anyway, I, I suppose that was because nothing too bad happened in this case. You could call it a celebratory disturbance. But you never know. Crowds of people, as State College has found out before, can be kind of unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do. And you never know how their mood is suddenly going to change. In Lystra today, uh, we're going to see an example of a crowd, with all those crowd dynamics working. Um, and encountering the messengers of Jesus Christ for the first time. Um, And at first, these people are going to respond with great enthusiasm. Sometimes crowds get very enthusiastic. They love something. They love these guys. They love Paul and Barnabas. But that mood of that crowd is going to turn on a dime very quickly as soon as they are challenged with the real message that these men have brought message that is calling them to change. And it only takes a little bit of incitement from a few people with an agenda to turn everything around and cause them to seek to, to kill these men instead. And there's a, a big picture idea that I want us to see here as a church this morning, which is that the approval of the world is just as dangerous for the church as its hatred. The approval of the world is just as dangerous for the church as its hatred. Paul and Barnabas recognize that in this passage, and what they end up doing is they end up rejecting the embraces of the people in Lystra, and instead they embrace the rejection by the world that actually marks faithful service in Christ's kingdom. That's why the title of this sermon this morning is Rejecting Embraces, Embracing rejection. I'm going to look at the passage in three parts this morning. First, we're going to look briefly at the mixed response to the gospel in Iconium in verses 1 through 7. Second, the misguided response 
to begin with in Lystra in verses 8 to 18, and then finally the malevolent response that follows in verses 19 to 23. So first, the mixed response at Iconium. Uh, Last time, remember, Paul and Barnabas were at the city of Pisidian Antioch, different from the Antioch in Syria where they started out. Um, And there in Pisidian Antioch, they encountered uh, a mixed response to the gospel there. Some of the people were responding with faith, but many others decided to stir up persecution against them. And so they move on. They shake the dust from their feet, verse 51, and they go on to Iconium. In Iconium, the same pattern plays out, uh, including their method of uh, preaching there. First of all, they go to the Jewish synagogue. And they speak there in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But also, just like in Antioch, the unbelieving Jews there, the ones who do not respond to the message, well, who don't respond with faith, instead they respond with persecution. Uh, Once again, this is significant because not only are these Israelites saying no to the message of Jesus, which is bad enough, the alternative is not just for them to be for them to be neutral and just kind of ignore it. What they're doing is they're actually joining forces with the pagan world. They are teaming up with Gentiles, of all people, against the Messiah and against his messengers. And it's following exactly the same pattern that you see in the crucifixion of Jesus. That's significant. It happens over and over in Acts that the experience of the apostles is very similar to the experience of Jesus, where the unbelieving Israelites join forces with the Gentiles to persecute the church, just as they killed Christ. Um, So notice in verse 3, as Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming this message of Christ, notice how active the Lord Jesus himself is personally at the same time. It's not just Paul and Barnabas who are active here. It is the Lord Jesus himself. Remember, who is the main character of the book of Acts? It is the Lord Jesus acting from heaven through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see here is Jesus, it says, was bearing witness personally to the word of his grace uh, through the miracles that are taking place. And you'd think that with these miracles taking place here, that, that that would be the most natural thing in the world for the entire city to see those supernatural acts of God and to turn and respond in faith. But instead, it says, the people of the city were divided. The message of Christ has always been a dividing line. Christ himself says in Luke 12, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Like we saw last time, the message of Jesus brings people to a crisis. It brings people to a fork in the road. He himself is the great dividing line. What are you going to do about Jesus? That is the great question that every human being faces. The upshot of this persecution in Iconium, then, is that Paul and Barnabas uh, again relocate their missionary efforts. This time, they go on to the nearby city of Lystra. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here in Lystra is the many similarities between the healing of this uh, crippled man and the parallel miracle uh, that Christ did through Peter and John, another pair of messengers. 
back in chapter 3. Um, remember when they go to the temple to pray and they meet the lame man who was there uh, by the gate and he asks them for money and Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I have give I to you. Um, anyways, once again here, uh, there are many parallels to that miracle in this healing of this lame man in Lystra, um, except now this is in front of a primarily Gentile audience. And once again, um, Christ is vindicating and illustrating the gospel message that's being brought to the city by Paul and Barnabas. He's vindicating it, he's validating it, um, by, he's, he's proving that the message is true by accompanying it with this supernatural power. He's also illustrating it, though, right? He's showing visibly what it's like uh, for helpless people to be given supernatural ability to do what they could not do before. This helpless person is beginning to walk for the very first time in his life by a power that can only come from God. That's what the gospel is like. And again, it's just like what happens in chapter 3 with Peter and John. Um, But you see, the way the people of Lystra react shows that they've completely missed the, the actual point of this miracle. They assume that if there's been a miracle, then it must have taken place because of the power of their own gods. Uh, there was actually, this is kind of interesting, there was a, a mythical folk tale that was uh, common in this region uh, about a time when Zeus and Hermes had supposedly uh, once visited a nearby town disguised as humans. And uh, in this story, um, none of the people would, would take them in. None of them would, would extend hospitality to these strangers, except for this one couple. And of course, that couple ends up getting rewarded by the gods and... Um, the rest of the town that did not extend that hospitality ends up disappearing into a swamp. So it does not end well for the town that rejects uh, Zeus and Hermes. Now, with that in the background, think about what's happening here. These people have seen this miracle that's intended to confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they've interpreted it in terms of what they already believe. They've interpreted it in terms of what their culture already thinks not in terms of the message that these, these men have been bringing to them. In fact, um, this is a great example of what Paul uh, talks about in Romans chapter 1. What, they do, what they're doing is they're exchanging the truth of God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Right? Remember how Paul says that in Romans 1. Well, there are a lot of people in general not just in this time, but in our own as well, people who generally believe in God, and they think that that's good enough. I, I believe in God, so I'm, I'm basically like you are. You Christians are. Um, there are many other people who will say, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. I'm, I'm kind of a spiritual person. I just don't like organized religion. Of course, they are religious. People are worshipers by nature. There's nobody who's not religious because that's who we are. Um, the people in Lystra knew instinctively that this miracle demanded their worship. They could tell. Everybody worships something. The question is, what are you worshiping? What are you devoting your life to? What are you making sacrifices for? What is your heart committed to more than anything else in the world? And that is your God. That is your God. You can say, I believe in God. 
But you see, if your heart is not committed specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're following a different religion altogether. And it's probably some kind of mashup of religions drawn from the culture around you and not drawn from God at all. Um, notice what happens next, how the, the local pagan priest gets uh, really excited about this whole thing. He wants to um, take advantage and stir up this kind of religious frenzy that's starting to take place in this crowd. Um, one commentator points out that it would have been very good for business, especially for this priest's business, if this town could start claiming uh, to other people in the Greek world that a couple of gods had recently visited them. And you imagine how good that would have been for tourism. Everybody would have been flocking to this place. Oh, wow, Zeus and Hermes visited this city. And uh, so this priest uh, seizes this opportunity to, to use this moment for his own purposes. And that's another uh, kind of lesson for us here. We need to be very wary of people who would try to use our faith for their own purposes that have nothing to do with the purposes of God, like this priest. People who stand to gain by manipulating our religious feelings. That can be a preacher. can happen in the church. That can be a politician. Politicians do this all the time. It can be somebody who wants to date you. It can be in, in relationships. We've got to discern, discern, discern. Not get swept up by people using a show of religion, using religious language to make us more sympathetic with them when really what they're doing is they're seeking to manipulate us for their own goals that have nothing at all to do with Christ. Now let's think about Paul and Barnabas here for a minute and the choice that they're facing here. What are they going to do in this <laughs> kind of unusual situation? You've never had somebody try to offer sacrifices to you, I bet. Um, this, is, this is very different than what happened in the last couple of cities that they visited and and it's interesting that in this case, they're, you know, they're, um, they're, they're coming first to the Gentiles, in this case, kind of breaking that pattern of going to the synagogue first. It's this Gentile audience, and all of a sudden the people have decided they think they're gods. So what, what are Paul and Barnabas going to do? Um, you can imagine the temptation. Uh, Paul and Barnabas might have thought, well, this looks like a golden opportunity. These people think that we're gods. So maybe we can leverage that for Jesus. Maybe we can um, kind of uh, use that to give us a better platform for the gospel. Let's play along with this or something like that. Of course, they don't do that. No, they, they immediately try to put the kibosh on this offering of sacrifices to them. They think, um, yeah, they, they, it says they tear their garments they rush into the crowds. They're, they're very dramatically trying to put a stop to this. They say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of a like nature with you. They are here in Lystra for one reason and one reason only, and that is to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. And so that is what they're going to use this opportunity to do, even though it means contradicting these people and probably giving them grave offense, which is exactly what happens. Um, notice how bold and specific their message here is they are, they are challenging something that is quite basic to these people's culture, something that they really hold dear. They're saying these people's gods are vain things, empty. They're not gods at all. They're saying your gods are dead and lifeless. We're trying to tell you about the God who is alive 
the God who is the actual source of everything that good that you've ever experienced in your entire life, the God who's been very patient with you, as you've been ignorant of him, all of those good things that he has done for you, the blessing he's continued to pour out on you that you don't deserve, all of those good things obligate you actually to love and serve him and him alone. So don't worship us. Don't worship anything else either. You need to be worshiping this God, the living God that we're proclaiming to you. That message is directly contradicting the very basic way these people see God and the world. And that is the idea that God is basically like us. That we can manipulate and control God, that we can basically invent our own ways to worship him, whatever seems right, feels right to us. Paganism says, the blessing that I need, I can get from the idols that I make for myself. And Paul and Barnabas are saying the opposite. No, the the blessing that you need can only come from the Lord who made you, who's sovereign over you, not someone that you can manipulate. You know, Christianity always does this. Wherever it goes, it always contradicts the basic way that people have gotten used to, to seeing God and the world. It is subversive. It is subversive to the culture around you, to every culture, wherever it goes. It is subversive when you confess that Jesus Christ alone is the ultimate source of everything good in your life. Think about in our own culture. That means that it's not business, it's not government, it's not education, it's not technology. None of these things are cultures, idols, are the ultimate source of what is good in our lives. All of them are creatures. All of them are gifts from God. He's given us those things as a witness to his goodness and his rule over us. He did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But, of course, what we naturally do is we take those gifts of God and we start to worship them. We start to look to them as ultimate things. We, those things become our gods. They become the things that we ultimately devote ourselves to, the things that we look to expect to give us what we really need. And that is where Christ comes, and he contradicts our culture. He subverts our culture. The gospel message says you need to turn from these vain things to a living God. And so let's see what happens then when this culture finds itself contradicted by the gospel. And that leads to the third heading today, which is this malevolent response. The crowds are already in a frenzy. And then these these outsiders show up from these other cities, the last two cities of Antioch and Iconium. These are the same people who, at the beginning of the chapter, were already plotting to stone Paul and Barnabas there. And so they they start to make their way among the crowds, and they start to plant uh, their narrative about who these men really are, how dangerous their message really is. And you can see how quickly and completely the tide turns, all of a sudden you're the same people who were just about to worship Paul and Barnabas flip-flop completely to the point that now they've turned into this angry mob. They're convinced very easily, not only that Paul and Barnabas are not gods, but they are now actually enemies who ought to be thrown out of town. So they start throwing rocks at Paul and they're hitting him all over his head and body and they drag him out of the city and they leave him there for dead. And all of that happens so Quickly, in just one verse, all this change takes place. What you're seeing here is is this group of people 
who love religion, but they don't love Christ. And they have just experienced what it's like for the gospel to say no to them and to their culture. And in response, they are so easily stirred up then to hatred and violence against that gospel. You need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the world's approval is treacherous. There are some Christians who think that the best way to get the message of the gospel out is to try to make ourselves as attractive to the world as possible. If we can get the world to like us, to like the church, then maybe they'll come to like Jesus. The problem is that to do that, to get the world to like the church, what you have to do is you have to cater to the things the world values instead of the values of Christ. And see, the thing is, people are fine with Christianity as long as it is helping them make progress towards the idols they already have. Power and money and celebrity and beauty and health and intelligence and entertainment. As long as Christianity is helping people to get more of those things that they already want, well, then the culture will approve of us. And and so that's what some churches will try to do, is some Christians will try to do, is to try to convince the world that by being a Christian, you can get more of those idols that you already have. But see, when, when the church, when, when the world starts approving of us because of those things, the world loves that message. It's not the gospel that they're approving of. It's not the kingdom of God under the rule of Christ. And as soon as they realize that your actual faith, the actual commitment to Christ that the gospel is communicating, that that actually contradicts their idols, threatens those values, that approval and very quickly turn to hatred. Of course, that was only true for Paul and Barnabas in this case. It's only true for us now because it was first true for who? It was true for Jesus. You think about Luke chapter 4. It's always helpful when you're reading Acts to think about how Luke communicates about the life of Christ in his gospel. Um, And you think about that first sermon that Jesus preached in his hometown of Nazareth in chapter 4, and everybody's so excited at first about this hometown boy coming back to preach to them in their synagogue. And verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. You can, you can just imagine everybody thinking how cute this is. This, this boy who grew up here now, he's this grown man. He's going to preach to us in the synagogue. But what does Jesus do? He rebukes them for ignoring his actual message. He contradicts them. He says they're wrong about him. And just six verses later, so quickly it happens. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town. Just like Paul. It's the same thing. Jesus is driven out of Nazareth. Paul is driven out of Lystra. They try to throw Jesus off a cliff. They stone Paul. Paul is experiencing all of this here because he is faithfully following Jesus. Jesus walked this path before him, this path of rejecting the treacherous embraces of the world. I think it's worth asking ourselves then, are there areas in our lives where we are being taken in by the embraces of the world? You could ask yourself, am I... Am I willing to uh, be a public Christian to kind of identify with Christianity 
among other people outside the church, as long as it earns me approval from other people, as long as people respect me for being a Christian. But what happens or what would happen to your faith if that approval were taken away, if it actually cost you something to say, yes, I belong to the Lord Jesus. And here's what I believe because he says that it's true. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 6.26, Woe to you, woe to you when all people speak well of you. That's a provocative statement. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. People love a false prophet. A prophet will tell them what they want to hear already. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. Jesus is calling us there in Luke 6 to reject those treacherous embraces of the world. But then he goes on in that same, oh, actually a little earlier in that same chapter, Jesus gives the comforting promise that is on the flip side of that coin in verse 22. And he says, blessed are you, blessed, can you believe this? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's what's happening to Paul and Barnabas here. And he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy For behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so just as Christ embraced that path of rejection and suffering that the Father set before him, now we see Paul and Barnabas embracing that same path of rejection and suffering that Christ is setting before them. Think about Paul on the ground there, left for dead outside the city of Lystra. You can imagine a voice in his head saying, just just stay down, Paul. Just stay down. Know that you've been beat. Don't you give up on this first missionary journey. If you look at what Paul does instead in verse 20, it's one of my favorite moments in the book of Acts when it says, but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day it's on to the next city. And he preaches the gospel there, and then the next city after that, and what happens, it says they made many disciples there. Remember what Paul's going to say later when he writes to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I want to know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection. And he also says he wants to share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And Paul is living out that twofold aspect of the Christian life here. He is sharing in the sufferings of Christ but he is also sharing in the resurrection power of Christ at the same time. You cannot have one without the other in the Christian life. And I want us to know together this morning as the church living today that that grace and power that got Paul up off the ground outside Lystra sent him back into the city and on to the next, that is the same grace that Christ is holding out to you today that can empower you to keep following Christ, no matter the cost to you. It's the same grace that can embolden you to to speak about Christ openly, even if people are going to think less of you for it, even if you're going to be opposed and ridiculed and marginalized because of it. And we need to be seeking from the Lord, asking God for this this grace-empowered tenacity displayed by the Apostle Paul, um, this, this steady dogged commitment to the world-contradicting priorities of the kingdom of God through the resurrection power of the Spirit of Christ. Imagine in verses 21 and 22 then, as 
as Paul and Barnabas travel back through these cities they've just visited. If I were Paul, I probably would have done a bypass around Lystra. Don't go back to the same city where people just tried to stone you. But what are, what are Paul and Barnabas wanting to do here? They're wanting to go back and encourage and strengthen these churches that are going to now have to live in this hostile environment um, when Paul and Barnabas have gone on back to Jerusalem. And it says, as Paul, uh, um, they, they go strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I want you to imagine the depth of that encouragement coming to these people from the mouth of Paul after everything they've just seen him go through. Think how true it would ring. This encouragement is coming to them from somebody who really knows, who has really suffered, who has really lived this out, who has really shown courage. And it's because he has shown this courage in Christ that he is now able to encourage others so effectively. When you read Paul's letters today, remember that the person writing those letters to the church is not somebody sitting in a cushy armchair somewhere and living a life of luxury and talking about these things of God. This is somebody who's had these rocks thrown at him, who's been dragged out of a city and left for dead, among many other things that he suffered for the sake of Christ. This is the stuff of real life. And that should encourage us, as it encourage the people of these churches Build up our faith when we read Paul's letters, just as it encouraged and built up the faith of these new Christians and these baby church plants there in Asia Minor. And finally, you can look at verse 23, where it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Remember, this whole story started when a lame man heard about Jesus and believed, and in that moment, God showed his Almighty power to make that lame man walk. Great demonstration of the power of Christ through the Holy Spirit. That is the Christ that these people have believed in. And Paul and Barnabas know that if that Christ can make a lame man walk, then he is also mighty to preserve his church living in the midst of a hostile culture. This hostile culture and the one that we're living in as well. And so it is to Christ. It is to that Christ who made the lame man walk. It is to that Christ that Paul and Barnabas entrust these churches. Yeah, so crowds of people are indeed very unpredictable. You never know what they're going to do and how their mood is going to change. So Paul and Barnabas knew better than to entrust themselves to the mob of Lystra, but they also know, knew who they could trust and who they could entrust these churches to, and that is the Lord Jesus who never changes, who is not fickle, who is always faithful, and who is with us now as he was with them then in the midst of a hostile culture to give us the strength to keep the faith, to keep rejecting those treacherous embraces of the world and to embrace instead the rejection that Christ experienced. Rejection by the world, sure, but in the end, warm acceptance and embrace and welcome of the one who will say well done to us in the end 
if we endure. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the story of Paul and Barnabas. Um, Lord, in in many ways, a, a harrowing story. And yet stirring to see this courage of your servants. Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage, the faith, the strength, through your Holy Spirit, to follow Christ on the path of rejection, to reject the treacherous embraces of the world, and to embrace that path of rejection as we follow him, as we look for your embrace, your acceptance, your heavenly welcome in the end that you have promised us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.